0: You're listening to a podcast from the RSA. You can find out more about RSA events and projects and how to get involved with the fellowship by visiting our website, thersa.org.
1: Good evening, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm the RSA's chief executive. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's special event. Uh, We're able to undertake events like tonight's because of the support of our amazing fellowship. So if you're a fellow of the RSA, thank you. So much for making tonight possible. And if you're not a fellow of the RSA, you'd like to know more about this amazing organisation, then go to our website. Um, now, tonight's event is a bit of a black swan event because um, we were contacted by uh, Rohan last week, and he said, "Would it be possible for us to do an event in incredibly short notice uh, uh, with Nasim?" And we thought, "Oh, we'd be able to do that." I spoke to Alex; she said, oh, "It's very difficult to do it in such short notice." And then I think within about 36 hours, we were having to send uh, to tell hundreds of people they couldn't come. So that shows what a great uh, draw you are. And that's what happens, I guess. With the, this is a, this is a black of We've got about 10,000 people here. So we're delighted to welcome Nassim Nicholas-Taleb, his Distinguished Professor of Risk Engineering at the New York University's Polytechnic Institute. Nassim has devoted his life to problems of luck, randomness, human error, probability, and the philosophy of knowledge. He's the author, as you all know, of The Black Swan, an exploration of high-impact rare events. And Nassim came to wider public attention as one of the few prominent academics to correctly warn of catastrophe in the financial system ahead of the credit crunch. Um, he's been involved in risk-based policymaking, advising institutions such as the IMF uh, and our own Prime Minister on model error and the detection of tail exposures. We are especially honoured that you have been able to join us today and I seem to share with us your ideas and insights. But this is a slightly unusual event tonight, because uh, it's also my great pleasure to introduce to you Rohan Silver, who will engage Nassim in conversation. Rohan is Senior Policy adviser uh, to the aforementioned Prime Minister. He was previously Senior Policy Advisor for the 2010 general election, and Economic Advisor to the Shadow Chancellor, George Osborne, that man who's been bringing such joy to our lives this week. Um, prior to this, uh, Rohan was a fast fast-stream policy, fast policy analyst at uh, uh, the Treasury, uh, Rohan has led the development of creative new approaches to policymaking, including the application of behavioural economics to public policy, the use of crowdsourcing models to generate ideas and open up the decision-making process, and the harnessing of open data and government transparency to drive social and economic innovation. Rohan has recently been appointed as a policy fellow at Cambridge University. So, please join me in welcoming Rohan Silva.
0: Well, thank you uh, for that very kind introduction. It sort of worries me that the introduction to me was longer than the int- introduction to Nasim. so I'll, I'll try and put that right. Um, Nasim is very generous to us. He, he comes to London uh, every once in a while to share his thoughts with the Prime Minister and others. And I think the last time you came to town, my uh, diary secretary said to me, um, well, look, when Nasim comes to number 10, I want to collect him from the front door. And I said, uh, okay, sure, fine. And the day that Nassim did arrive at the front door, she called me up and says, he's here, I'm getting him, right? Not you, I'm going to go and pick him up from the front door, not you. And I said, okay, fine, fine, but can I just ask, by the way, why is it that you're so keen to pick him up? And she said, Rohan, come on, Nassim Taleb, the man who wrote the Natalie Portman film, The Black Swan. <laughs> I... Um, I didn't put her right, actually. I don't know what she said to you on the – I first met Nassim uh, about four years ago at the beginning of a policy trip across America taking in academics and uh, entrepreneurs in New York and Boston – entrepreneurs and thinkers – and in in New York and Boston and Silicon Valley. And (coughs) Nassim overshadowed. Everyone else we met. It was Nassim that we talked about after every meeting, no matter who we uh, bumped into. And the reason—well, the, re- well, the reason—the uh, reason for that, I think, is that we had sat down with Nassim for, for breakfast, assuming that he was principally a financial theorist, principally someone with very deep, very prescient insights about the financial crisis that later enveloped the world and continues to have reverberations around the world. But the truth is that those insights are an uh, implication <coughs> of his much deeper thinking about the limits of human knowledge, about fragility, um, and about decision-making in uh, moments where you have limited information. And uh, for those of you that have spent any time in Whitehall, making decisions uh, when there's limited information is, is what you do basically all the time. And the uh, insights that Nassim has about the way in which we should think about structuring government, structuring the economy, uh, thinking about uh, breaking up monolithic entities into, into smaller, less fragile elements, um, is something that I'm very keen to tease out of Nassim today because I think I think there's very rich, fractal-like uh, exploration of his work that yields incredible insights. Today, um, uh, once I'm done rambling, Nassim is going to talk about his new book. He's going to give you some insights, a preview of his new work, um, which covers an incredibly important topic, I think, a topic uh, Nassim describes as anti-fragility. Um, which uh, could have been the, the subject officially of, of today 's talk, and I think uh, retrospectively will be the subject of today 's talk um, i won 't fully do it justice so on that note I should hand over to nasim to talk about this concept incredibly beautiful incredibly important of anti fragility so, thank you, thank you.
2: That's very no, uh, actually, I'm not coming up to present, uh, to introduce anti fragility. Uh, you know, it's always boring to present. So, what I came up is to show you graphs. So, to, in the conversation, so you know what we're talking about during the conversation. Is it okay? So, first, there's no definition, uh, this is, the slides is too strong, there's no definition of fragility. Okay, there's no definition of risk. Risk is very hard to uh, pin down, has never really been defined properly. And, and then I realized that what they call black swan events are not predictable. We don't understand them, but we understand very well that should an event happen, what, will, what you'll do. You see? For example, if you have Fukushima and then you have this event, then you can predict very easily, conditional on an event happening, what the results will be. And likewise, if you have small reactors in concrete in the ground, you know that Fukushima, Tokushima, Fukushima can happen. No big deal, because yep. should you have a very uh, large deviation or, or a big event, you know the worst-case scenario. So we're shifting from predictive methods to uh, 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 the assessment of your the effect of something, your exposure. In other words, are you fragile or are you robust to some classes of exposures? But now let me define fragility. Using the following uh, parable, there was a king who, like many kings, had a son. Uh, you, know, you know, you know. I don't know if you've met children of kings. You know, like some former student of LSE, they can be quite difficult to control. And the 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 child was very mischievous, and his father told him, "Listen, if you do I don't know whatever children of king do, I'll crush you with this big stone." The the of course. The the kid being a child of a king, right? The, 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 he, uh, you know, whatever did whatever mischievous act, and his father had to execute because being a king, I don't know, there are not many kings left, but usually have to uh, uh, be true to your uh, promise. So, he had, the king had a dilemma. He had to crush his son with a big stone, and the solution. What do you think the solution was? Was offered by one of his ministers. What do you think the solution was? Sorry you break the stone in small pebbles. So it's a very simple definition. From this, we get a definition of fragility, which is that harm is nonlinear and has this concave shape. Harm is nonlinear to the size of stone. Okay? Very simple. So from this, you have a perfect definition of fragility. If I jump from 100 meters to the floor, I get harm. Visibly, you get no speaker, no second edition of the black third edition of the black swan stuff like that but if i jump a million times from one nano whatever uh, unit okay i not harmed you see so there's not linearity It means every incremental meter hurts me more if i drive a car against a wall at 100 miles per hour definitely no speaker if i drive the same car a thousand times at a tenth of a mile per hour you still have your speaker you see so, therefore, you have nonlinearities. And that's the definition of fragility that, based on that, we can do a lot of things. We can explain why, when you have nonlinearities, as you see here, large deviation, harm from black swan, you see the linear in red and the nonlinear in the curve. Large deviations affect you a lot more, where small deviations is about even. But, aha, now it means that we can measure fragility in terms of this convexity, concavity, actually, this nonlinearity. To, to show you the difference between concave and convex, concave is what curves inwards, and convex what curves outwards, right? Or vice versa. Who cares? You see the graph, right? But there's much easier way to figure it, to memorize it. Okay, see the difference between convex and concave. So you realize, and why? It's very simple. You have an asymmetry. When you have a convex shape. For a given movement in a variable, say, I don't know if you can use this to point, you are here. A deviation in a variable brings more pain than gain when you're concave. If you're convex, you get more gain than pain. Simple, no? So we can build everything in terms of asymmetries. Asymmetry. More upside than downside, more downside than upside. If you have more upside than downside, then you benefit from uncertainty. Very simple. More downside than upside, you lose from uncertainty. We have a glass here. This glass definitely does not gain from uncertainty. So I'm still not defining anti-fragility. We'll do it in a conversation. We're talking about fragility. It's very easy now to map its opposite. This is traffic, why traffic is concave to number of cars. You see, if you have, a, uh, say, 90,000 cars in, in, in a certain city, uh, imaginary city, all right, uh, no traffic jam, you add more cars, no traffic jams, and boom, traffic jam doubles. This may explain why it takes—it took me like an hour and a half yesterday to get from the airport. You can understand these things, all right? So you have maybe just 10% too many cars in London. It also explains that when you, why something like Heathrow, the minute uh, someone sneezes or something, the smallest, smallest perturbation moves you from here to here. So you have people camping on the floor, just like in, like refugees in um, during the Russian Revolution, you see in train stations, people camping on the floors of Israel. It also explains why over-optimized systems have these shapes, The shape. Um, so now I've explained We can explain size with the story of the stone, why too big to fail can be explained in terms of fragility coming from size. The biggest uh, – can, uh, uh, can I speak Latin on here? Okay, the biggest bullshit in history is that notion of the economy is a scale. It doesn't show in the numbers companies merge, they're visibly bigger. You see the benefits immediately, what the, this nonsense calls synergy, but it doesn't show in the numbers. Few firms don't survive. And when they're bigger, after the merger, there are no benefits. Why? Because something is lost somewhere. I'm going to give you a very simple example of where that takes place. Why adverse events hurt you more. You see the picture of this gentleman? He's a Frenchman it's called kerviel he definitely has a record so far of rogue trading. So far, but, you know, you try to match him here in the city of London with a gentleman at UBS, nothing close, all right? He still has lost 4 billion euros uh, as a rogue trader. But, in fact, what happened is he was hiding $50 billion as risk. That was, You know, you have an adverse effect. You have your trader hiding $50 billion. And he had not lost money until then, or very little. Okay, nothing, you know to make the front page or to make him a legend. What happened is that 50 billion euros cost 4 billion to liquidate. And you had 10 traders, we call them micro Okay, still a nice name. Not, you know, with, and then you, instead of having a big bank, like Societe Generale, you have micro Societe Generale. The French are capable of having a name like that, micro okay. So you have 10 of them serially going bust, just like the story of the pebbles. The cost of liquidating 5 billion 10 times would have been a lot less than, in total, than 4 billion. And this is why, this is the curve. The cost of liquidating small amounts is here. 10 times this here is less than 1 time this. You see, so you have concavity. So I'm defining everything in terms of concavity or convexity. And let me, before I go back and sit down and have civilized uh, conversation without math, very simple, when you're convex, the gains are smaller than the pains. And here, pain is bigger than gain, all right? That's very simple. So we can continue the conversation. This is why I wanted to have the graph, so I'm less abstract when I speak. Thanks.
0: Thank you for that. um, (coughs) One of the perennial questions we we talk about, and when we first met, we we were talking about this, was the the application of your thinking, particularly sort of popularized with regard to uh, the financial services, too big to fail and and so on, the the fragilizing effect of size, which you elucidate in your your graphs here. I think there's a degree of... Um, sort of domain thinking. We sort of we might buy that when it comes to the financial services sector, but not so much in other fields. Um, you know, w- what do you think, Nassim, about the way in which? Uh, so you take the UK; it's, a, it's still a very centralized state.
2: Yeah, um, well, it,
0: our public services are still largely sort of monolithically sort of administered. Uh, is, is that is that something you think your insights might?
2: Yeah. Well, decentralisation. I mean, I uh, don't think in terms of political systems so much what's better than in terms of size, because size effects, fragility doesn't necessarily come from political systems. All right. So uh, you know the country called Switzerland. Okay. You've heard of it. Uh, people, you you know, you realize that the country doesn't have a government. People can't name the president. It functions very well. People think that it's a, a perfectly libertarian place. It's not. It's a total dictatorship, but at the communal level. So it's not the choice of political system so much as the size of the unit that matters more than the political system. The political system may matter, but but again, I mean, it's the kind of thing you talk about at Princeton, political science department where you got nothing else to do in life, you see, all the rejects. But the real thing is fragility isn't determined so much by whether it's top-down or or bottom-up as much as the size of the unit, you see, because you can have a tyrannical household, you see, like... uh grandmother, tyrannical grandmother. You get the idea. Mm. So this is the first thing about decentralization. There's a second effect to show how scaling works. People, If you double the size of a village, you make the interactions between individuals vastly more complicated. And and you know that you no longer have uh, the the same biological reactions to your decision-making. And and let me explain. Some uh, uh, person in Washington... Uh, making a project, uh, of course, will chronically make mis- uh, have mistakes, but they don't get feedback because they don't have any uh, physical contact with the people, with their victims. You see, a bureaucrat in Washington. Whereas if you're running a small village, you run, you spend people's money, you run into them Sunday at church, and they make eye contact with you, they make you ashamed of your mistake, if you've overspent. So there's a lot more, there's this natural shame, and as a biological check that operates at the municipal level or a small level that doesn't at the large level, you mm. see. And, and, and also you have more vested interest in a local politician than someone just trying to get elected to go to Washington. Yeah. And, and so you can't really have decision-making that's good cosmetically for re-election, but, but, but really by, 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 by cutting corners and hiding risk.
0: Yeah. You, you, you talk as well about the way in which uh, – Complexity within systems uh, increases exponentially. That you can end up having sort of cascade effects. Yes. That, that really cuts counter to something that Matthew and I talk about, which is, say, government uh, procurement. The view in when it comes to IT procurement, procurement generally, is that economies of scale are always never present. That you know, let's just it, let's uh, consolidate these contracts, aggregate size, and we'll save money that way. You, you suggest that. This this may be fragilizing. This may lead to problems.
2: Yeah, what happens is that uh, we know now from computer projects that they scale, the error scales faster than size. As you saw here, I mean, if you look at this graph of black swan effects, the unpredictable cost you a lot more here, okay, because you have scaling that's nonlinear. This is a fundamental nonlinearity that exists in systems, and naively you think that by having a larger IT you're going to, but you're going to do better because, of course, you're going to have a lower unit cost. But the mistakes are costlier and costlier. You just have to read, look at history. Companies, large companies commit suicide. Okay, why do they commit suicide? This, this is, a, you know, it's obvious in things. And you can see it in the data. So same with IT projects. The gentleman at Oxford, Ben floodberg, figured out that complexity, you know, now is making projects... Uh, harder and harder to predict, and visibly, IT projects are the central uh, problem because these are the ones that scale, uh, uh, you know, scale down the uh, the most. Mm. So I agree. I mean, have a centralized IT seems nice on paper, but errors percolate very quickly, and 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 then you're going to have problems.
0: And there's an asymmetry which you also talk about, which is that these—it's very rare for these—it's very hard for a plane to arrive. Five hours early. Exactly.
2: Um, this is, okay, unpacked. when you have, okay, uncertainty, the, uh, uh, arri- uh, plane arrival time is perfectly the opposite. Well, it's like, exactly like this. Uh, when, you, when you take uh, traffic, okay, this is plane arrival time. I know many of you have, I'm sure, crossed the Atlantic, right? you cross crossing the plane. How long does it take? Seven hours? Say seven, seven hours. hours. Seven hours. How many times have you arrived uh, half an hour early? All right, few. How many times have you arrived five hours early? Okay. Compare that to a number of times planes have arrived seven hours, five hours late, or uh, two weeks late, as has happened to me once with a volcano and the ice. You know, <laughs> as if we didn't have enough problems coming from Iceland. You know, with the financial thing. So, so here you have a. a There's some systems that are, uh, you know, that are bounded one way, become convex, and injecting uncertainty in that system. Increases the expected arrival time. This mm-hmm. is a property of the system. So this is why delays a project that's going to be three months can last seven months, can have four four months, uh, you know, can take four months longer, but it's never going to be five months shorter. You see. Mm-hmm. So the errors accumulate one way. So increasing uncertainty and underestimation of uncertainty implies necessarily underestimation of completion time and deficit costs which explains government deficit. Have you known a government that, uh, that I mean, it's very rare in the history to see a government overestimate, okay, uh, deficits or underestimate, uh, you know, uh, uh, usually they get it the other way. They always, always, always think they're gonna get surplus or something like that in five years and never get it because of that reason, because projects, uncertainty certainty makes project more costly and take longer mm.
1: can, I, can I ask a question um, we've got Philip Blond sitting here in the front from rest Public Care. it's a question I asked him when he uh, spoke here at one time which is and he I think he's a bit uncomfortable about it um, so I'll ask it again uh, um, I think one pound in five in Britain now is spent at the same shop Tesco uh, um, do you think that Rohan should go back and tell uh, the Prime Minister that he really needs to smash up Tesco before sooner or later Tesco Collapses and no, leaves okay. us all with no uh, uh,
2: food. Think about it. You have the illusion of getting uh, a cheaper food now. Think of if Tesco goes bankrupt. Eventually, it will. I mean, all companies go bankrupt. It's not like I'm predicting that Tesco. Eventually, when it's going to have a problem, what? How much you're going to have to pay back? But aside from other uh, factors, it's that when a company becomes powerful, then it starts convincing the public that it's working a public good. You see, and they're employing a lot of people, the government will bail them out. Assume that Tesco had a financial problem tomorrow. You'd be forced to bail them out. But have you ever heard of a national government bailing out a restaurant? No. Okay, small units are not bailed out. So it's a small guy gets a short shrift in the long run compared to the big guy. So I'm saying is that you think that you're buying the groceries cheaper now. Are you really, you know, you will, uh, it may work, okay, but at the end of, you can only estimate the cost of how much you're paying when you have to add your tax money in the long run. If there's a a problem in bail and other social disruption that you're paying for coming from Tesco, or Tesco, I don't know, I know nothing about Tesco. He just told me that that you guys (laughs) spent a lot of money there.
1: So so this is a problem for you, though, isn't it? Because you're you're pretty sceptical about the state and the state's capacity to regulate effectively, but yet. It sounds like you want a stronger role for the state in breaking no, no, up big I, okay, power.
2: That, that, okay, no, I have, I, I, the state is needed for some purpose, and, and, and I keep explaining. Uh, libertarians think that the markets are smart, and uh, uh, the, the, the other guys think that the markets are stupid, but government officials are are, are are smart. Okay, And I think both are silly, both markets and humans, right? So you have to live under that principle, that, that they're both silly. But... And particularly markets that are not natural environment, okay, we don't live natural markets, it's, you know, in, the, in this age. Modern, modernity has created a very uh, uh, weird setup where you don't have uh, natural dealing. It's all done by computers. And, and, of course, it generates some kind of cascades we didn't have before. So, But the government, what's the role of the government? The two things based on convexity effects: speed. You know that there have been experiments about um, traffic. Okay. If you have a nanny state telling you drive here, stop here, stop there, you're going to have more accidents. And there's an experiment done in the Netherlands by a libertarian society experiment in the Netherlands, which is a great experiment. And we figured out from it that traffic signals actually, uh, uh, worsen, uh, make, cause more accidents. And we know that more people die jaywalking, and, uh, less, fewer people die jaywalking than people die on, 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 on uh, crossing a regular, uh, street. But the other thing that libertarians using this argument don't realize that you, speed is dangerous. So instead of wasting time regulating traffic, you should regulate speed, and it's mostly an interdict: you cannot drive faster than 42.6 mile in this zone. That's it. Period. Thanks. Bye. You see, so government should be there to protect us from things that are net natural, that don't have a, net, a, 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 a organic way of fixing themselves. That's the first one.
1: Has anyone told you that the government's consulting about raising the speed limit right now? But that's about setting speed limits. Not (laughs) doing away with that. I think you meant slower, though, didn't you? No, no, not necessarily. (laughs) I'm saying
2: we we visibly know the effects of um, uh, 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 speed on, on, and and, and so to me, regulating speed or whatever, uh, I'm not going to get into the small, uh, 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 (laughs) tiny argument. uh, But the, the size and speed are things that need to be controlled. Okay, this is this is effective because, particularly, when companies become strong in America, Democrats love big government, and the Republicans love big corporation. It's totally incoherent. How can you like big corporation not like big government? They're the same. Particularly after uh, the gov- uh, uh, company becomes large and say, "Oh, I employ 600,000 employees," let's go have a lobbyist in Washington, and then the whole state becomes a servant to the big corporation. It's, it works both ways. You see, so this is incoherent. And when I met these guys. So talking about size, they understood right away that in, 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 in the animal kingdom, you don't have on land animals bigger than elephants on, 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 on dry land or haven't seen one. You never know. You, you, you understand. So, um, and the explanation is mostly uh, uh, convexity. When you have sources of randomness with lumpy uh, nutritional uh, delivery, Visibly, if you own as a pet, I don't know if you own pets, but if you own a mouse as a pet or maybe a dog, you're not going to pay up for water. But if you have an elephant and there is a shortage of water, you pay up a lot more per liter of water. You see, so the same convexity. When you're squeezed, you squeeze very hard. When you're large and you hurt others the, the, so after meeting them start concentrating on small is beautiful there's a romantic idea so I read this book I couldn't finish it small is beautiful but don't tell uh, Steve Hilton alright he's in love with the book but then realize that the the the, the, the what the guy the guy people talk about smallest is beautiful are missing is that risk based notion that large is harmful that's a stone you know versus the big stone and once you formalize it that way you realize that something falling hurts others. So I wrote a paper with a, with a colleague of mine on, that was only published in a physics journal because no economist would understand it, on, uh, in Physica, or, okay, on uh, the externalities of Tobik to make fail. When something, when a stone falls, it starts you know, causing damage to others, not to itself. And that's the problem.
0: The, um, the speed question, uh, when, I, when I last saw you, uh, Nassim, We were sketching out this sort of idea of um, applying this to the way we measure GDP. So you 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 say something quite often, which is that if you try and drive at 200 miles an hour in London, you're not going to get very far. And the way we, the way government, the way economic growth is measured, doesn't properly factor in fragility or the risk of fragility. Um, And I think think there's, there's something really interesting and important there that is absent from the way we talk about GDP growth and so on.
2: Exactly, it's just like, uh, uh, people don't, who, anyone talking about growth, doesn't know what growth means, right? Because if you just talk about raw growth, or we want growth, we want, they don't understand that it's exactly like Madoff. You want perfect growth, Madoff. <laughs> That's, I mean, is that the kind of thing you want? So, the, the, the if you drive again, uh, if you just count speed without discounting by probability of not, you know, of, of an accident, mm. so, or you paid back your speed, so, you know, if you drive 200 miles per hour in London, the effective speed is zero miles per hour. So people have this a uh, problem with risk management. They think that it's two separable items. You you have this growth, and then you have the risk. They don't understand that to, to first, uh, you know, to get rich, you have to first survive. People don't understand this logical uh, precedence of one over the other, you see. So, and, and they, they miss it. So, if you start formalising it this way, the notion of growth is complete nonsense. You have to use a, adjust growth by something. Sustainability doesn't—it doesn't—is not a word, right? I don't understand sustainability. It doesn't have—I can't map it on a graph. But you can understand perfectly fragility-based. Is, is it fragile or not? You see. To give you an example, I have two brothers involved in the same line of business. One cuts corners like BP, makes four dollars a share. The other makes $2 a share. Some analyst at some, some schmuck analyst working, say, for the city would say, oh, this guy making $4 a share is a good buy. But this guy will never make it, you know, probably past a decade. So you lose back everything, you see. Mm-hmm. Whereas the one who has $2 a share and is robust will make it. So you can analyze the two using one metric, you see. So, as a matter of fact, you can no longer talk about $4 a share. You know he's going to go bankrupt. You cannot talk about Madoff as gross. You say Madoff is zero. Okay? So, to me, anything that's not robust is zero. doesn't count, doesn't exist. We shouldn't be talking about it. You see, these measures should completely rule it out, not even discount it, you see.
1: So, so, Rowan, does that mean that the, that the government sees this period of slow, well, very slow growth as an opportunity to create a non-fragile economy?
0: We're here to. No, uh, no. We. Um, <laughs> I think the. Uh, where, we, where we've tended to try and apply Nassim's insights is to uh, the size of uh, public institutions, i.e. to try and uh, localize and uh, you know, to break up bigger entities into smaller to smaller bits. The I mean, a big part of Nassim's work, famously you know, Blackstone etc, is about the fragilizing nature of debt and um, which I'm sure he can talk about I'm sure questions will will get onto. I think that is the most obvious way in which um, we're we're sort of mapping onto your work. Um, I mean this is something you, you, you've talked about for, for years, but. Uh, uh,
2: now, now there's one thing I did, I said we we're going to talk about fragility, or anti-fragility. Okay, anti-fragility is the exact opposite of fragility. When you ask people what's the opposite of fragile, they say, well, it's robustness. It's not, because the opposite of negatively convex, conca- convex is concave, you see. So they don't get the point that uh, the opposite of one, is, the other one would be flat. So when you have a package uh, that's fragile, you write, handle or scare. An anti-fragile package, the opposite, would be something on which you write, please mishandle. Well, it turned out that there, anything organic benefits and needs randomness. And that's not in the public psyche, you see. the the uh, something. Uh, let me explain what do I mean by, by something organic. Has anyone of you heard of something called the health club? Okay, now what do you go to health club for? You subject your body to stress because it will get stronger, no? Okay. So people can understand it there, they can understand, uh, uh, antibiotic resistance. That if you give, you, you ingest antibiotics and you don't need them, that the, 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 the germs get stronger, right? You understand it? Uh, but yet people don't understand that by crushing riots, you make, they're anti-fragile because they love, the, it's like in mythology, you have Damocles, you sit down, you have a sword above you that's fragile. You don't know, at best, it's not falling on you. You're lucky if it doesn't fall on you. The robust would be like a phoenix. You 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 kill it, and what does it do? It comes back. The antifragile would be like which mythological figure? Hydra. You cut one head, you got two back. So not only it needs, it, it likes, it, it needs disorder, some amount of disorder to survive. So what happened is I have this graph here that applies across anything organic I wanted to show. Up the top, you have a natural system that has fluctuations. And at the bottom, if you constrain the fluctuation, you end up with big cascades and jumps. So I use that for political system. Say uh, Egypt, you had some dictator, whatever it is, 40 years. No, it it was like here. Saudi Arabia currently, Syria until a few weeks ago. Actually, in the black swan, you saw the Arabia and Syria, I didn't imagine Egypt, okay, as having this shape. And, of course, you know that you uh, you remove the, 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 the whatever owner of the place, and then, you know, uh, you're going to have a big cascade and a total turmoil. It's going to be very harmful. So depriving the natural system of volatility, whether economic, like you had a, a person in uh, 10 Downing, the big guy, he wants to eliminate... The cycle, the business cycle. Well, sure enough, didn't, sorry, Gordon Brown. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 he's, he's, he's more dangerous than the previous guy because he thinks he understands the world, right? Because he's intellectual. That's the problem with intellectual. So it's called the denial of anti-fragility. Then you end up with no business cycles. Him and Greenspan, of course, conspired, and sure enough, look where we are. Mm. Okay. So whereas, so an anti-fragile thing, because when you deprive your body of, of uh, food for 24 hours. You have, um, you have you know, you eliminate cancer cells. So you need stressors. Things need stressors. So there are a lot of models of these, forest fires, anything, anything organic and complex. Hence, now we have two kind of uh, systems. One, the organic, like you, for example, if I, you and I had a fight, you, both of us would end up minutes. stronger. No, but both of us get stronger. You say, if someone beats on me, not too much, up to a point, I get stronger. No? But if you beat on the stable, will it get stronger? No. So therefore, the organic has atrophy, use it or lose it, needs some amount of stress. And the other one doesn't want stress. So the whole thing, the economists think that the economy is like uh, something non-organic. And, 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 and other people, it's not formalized that way, it is organic. And of course you can translate this into, it maps into convexity effect. I just want to make sure that my next book would not be understood by the person who buys it at Row. So it would be designed to be all convexity effects, alright? Just to make sure. We, I have the best seller, I'm done, alright? But, but it will sell and it'll be, so it, you can translate everything in terms of convexity effects that we saw earlier. One of the um, economic
0: categories that Nassim talks about in his next book is being, um, uh, amenable to anti-fragility, i.e. thrives in, um, uh, in in periods of volatility. Is is venture capital and angel investment, and certainly we've tried to do an awful lot to um, pump prime uh, that that particular field. But that that wasn't my that wasn't my question. I, I wanted to ask one last question before opening out to all of you, which is, I think one of the uh, most profound. Uh, uh sort of insights from your work something you say again and again is that human thought is itself fragilizing that the uh the, the limits to our knowledge mean that um you know human human thought human
2: action causes fragility i just i just wonder if you could yes f- exactly let, let me better. explain let me explain it in terms of nature you've heard of mother nature right it's, it doesn't have does it have an office of prediction no, it works by itself without prediction. It's organic and, and it works by How does it work without prediction? It builds things that are robust because robustness is the opposite of a predictive system. When you have debt, you have to be very precise in the way you uh, you know you, you see the future. When you have redundancies and, and you have some kind of built, you don't really care. So when you have two kidneys, you don't really care what's going to make you lose a second kidney. You just have a second one. If you have cash in the bank, you don't want to predict whether... You're going to lose your cash because you're going to have a recession, a war with France, or Martians invading. You don't have to consider that. You have, you see, get the idea? You got gold in a basement, and you got, you you see, so this is redundancy. So this is the the opposite between two systems. Now, what happens is that we humans, the more intellectual we are, the more we think, and the more we build things that are fragile, because they depend so much on our projection of the future. It's called representational fragility. You see, you change the the, 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 the so they depend on theories and stuff. Whereas things that are robust, and they don't need theories. Now research, it turned out that the more theories we have, the less research discoveries we made. You see, there's, it's called a teleological fallacy, or I, I coined it, or Harvard, Soviet Harvard illusion. Okay, the Soviet Harvard illusion is you start a company to make this drug for this. There's only four drugs on the market. There are two, There's 678,000 drugs on the market today in the world. There are four drugs on the market that are there for what exactly they were made for, the AIDS-related drugs, uh, three AIDS-related drugs and one I forgot. Okay, most cancer drugs are or a lot of drugs are for something else. You said aspirin is used at blood center It started as antipyretic Later mutated into uh, analgesic painkiller and stuff. So nothing. So so really, if you let the system discover its use organically, if say trial and error. So what I call this is kind of rational. And and for those of you familiar with option theory, all I'm doing is repeating what I did, what I start, what I had my first intelligent, my only intelligent book before this is dynamic hedging, is on nonlinearities in exposures and in options, which visibly, you know, it took me a while to translate into into social economic systems and into uh, decision making and when you own the option you don't have to understand the world uncertainty benefits you so ignorance is beneficial when you trial and error you have small cost to pay it's convex big payoff whereas if you're designing a system okay, it has more downside than upside so I'm translating everything in terms of this asymmetry more upside than downside or who owns the option and even ethics are translated in these terms when someone owns the upside and we taxpayers are stuck with the downside, okay? So it, it, it turned out also there's some empirical evidence we can show a lot of things that anything done top-down is fragile, it's concave. Anything bottom-up that takes place organically is convex and likes uncertainty as a system. Uh,
0: yes, thank you. I, I basically profoundly uh, buy this thesis. I think it's absolutely correct. But the interesting question is, why does everything else, human, tend to the big? Economics, service delivery, government procurement. What are the incentives and the structures, anthropological, social, that pushes everything to scale uh, and to such damaging effect? So if we're going to tackle this problem, what can we do to tackle those forces that keep trying to drive everything to scale?
2: It's very simple. I started my book with this. I discovered this beautiful idea that uh, less is more. That typically, very complex problems have very simple solutions. Otherwise, it doesn't work. Uh, Fast and frugal heuristic. What do you do? Less is more. So, for example, what do you do to to run a... You you just have like the Ten Commandments. Ten, you should have four per domain. And the four per domain for government is if you do three things. The first one is no government deficit except of course if you have a crisis and then you have to have surplus in other times. so you shoot for surplus not balanced budget for one so no big government that fragilizing two you don't you have a contract not to bonus any company that you list today is is uh, can be bailed out by the government that puts immediate constraint on size because people say i want to get a bonus in my company and make it small so no social cost. That's the second one. The, the other two forget about, okay? But I'll answer you. Know, it's, uh, here, you get 95% effects with very small uh, rules, but you have to work hard at finding the rules, all right? 20 yep. years per rule or so. Yep. <laughs>
1: My question was actually
0: following on from that. It was... If we already have enormous organizations, be they companies, governments, or whatever, now what do we do? I remember way back when in Maverick saying, you know, that we ought to break things up into little little units once they become bigger. What what do we
2: do Uh, as well as trying to
1: stop them? What do we do now? And and can I also... Turn that to you also, Ryan, because okay. you, you advise the government. So how, does this, how does this turn into a policy agenda mm-hmm. from government? Okay,
2: you know what? I'm not going to answer. I have no clue how. It's not my problem how you make it smaller. <laughs> I, I work, no, no. Actually, I, I don't answer. I don't answer uh, it's like people think. I'm an emergency. I'm a risk person. I'm not an emergency room uh, s- uh, surgeon. All right. Mm. So I, you don't. Nor am I an ambulance driver. All right. So emergency yeah. room surgeon, you take over. What?
0: Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the obvious answer is that um, we, we are trying to move from uh, an education system where you know, the central uh, Department for Education micromanages every school, um, employs every teacher in the same way, to one made of much smaller, more autonomous entities, yes, funded by uh, the state, but with much greater autonomy. The same approach in the NHS, which, of course, is is contentious, uh, and in other public services, too, welfare and so on. So, um, And the, the approach, of course, is wherever possible, individual budgets, where that's not possible, payment by results, um, and so, we, you know, we have a schema of approaches that uh, are used to try and drive incentives and choice down um, to, to break up these, these institutions. But what about in the economy? Well, um, the, um, I th- the, the question of, of competition policy is uh, a very deep one. And we're, we're doing a huge amount of work on merging the OFT and competition commission. So you have a much more aggressive sort of trust-busting sort of stance, precisely – um, because of the fragility effects that uh, Nasim is talking about, as well as other spillover sort of externalities. Yeah, given the individual homeowner's failure to pay his mortgage, uh, we had the dust which formed into a subprime um, mortgage crisis. Uh, within the organic systems, the other system we have, that organic system seems, seems to hedge their risk by producing weak offspring, which might become um, more powerful later on. And within uh, the particular question, uh, there is, uh, don't you think the levy on financial transaction actually represents the organic system which hedges the risks of the transactions? And uh, within a given complexity of governments which wants to protect itself,
1: what are the ways forward?
2: Okay, I, I don't know about uh, Levy. And, uh, uh, people go for complex things, difficult to implement. It's very simple. The, the whole notion of the tax deductibility of mortgages, okay, is a fraud, because we know that it invites people to. Uh, the whole notion. I mean, I don't know what your policy is on it, but let me tell you, in America, in the United States, you can't have any constraint on it, and we know the countries like Australia and. Um, uh, that Because uh, the debt in the system starts getting built based on speculative thing. So you can allow probably some mortgage, but not for speculative reason, you see. And uh, so the whole idea, so I'd rather constrain things with, by playing with the tax code to prevent people from speculating, using their houses uh, uh, as a cash machine to go on vacation to Spain, alright. They do it, alright. Uh, rather than play with, uh, you see, and you have to, in America, face a big lobby. There's nothing wrong with someone borrowing to buy a house. There's something wrong with someone speculating, right, with with, with bank money, hence taxpayer money. So this is, this is where uh, it's much easier to do that rather than prevent putting tax on finance, which, in fact, may increase transaction costs in society. And it's very hard. And people will play with it, this regulation tax. People play with it because I remember there was a stamp tax here in the U.K., And then you trade in in some offshore place, a contract for differences that will circumvent it. So I'm certain a a financial tech will not work.
0: Thank you very much for that. Um, Just quickly, because you mentioned Silicon Valley, um, I think it's a really good example. Um, Having been in the industry and sort of Internet startups for like the last 10, 15 years, I would say that, you know, there is a way around this with some big companies. There are a few people that are cracking it. You know, companies like Google, like Facebook, especially in terms of software, take advantage of the limitations of the software, which is they're not creating a physical product, but they're able to iterate very quickly. They hire masses of very smart people. They change their product. They listen to people. They iterate very, very quickly, so they embrace this whole organic notion. Now, the question is, is is that model scalable beyond a small pocket of very, very smart people and a handful of companies.
2: I, I think using here aberrations, the fact that Google, uh, Apple, and, and the other one, uh, they're large, because uh, I remember, you know, the thing, the only interesting, the interesting thing about this um, uh, inequality is that people see inequality, say that 1%, that 1%, it's never the same 1%, or no, not entirely the same 1%, you see. So domination of these large corporations, and Google is, what, 10 years old? Okay, it took... I remember Alta Vista. How long did it take to displace Alta Vista? Okay, out of our consciousness? Weeks? All right. (laughs) So it may take weeks to displace your two friends there out of our consciousness, all right? So I'm saying these are very fragile companies. They're large and very fragile. And in the Internet world, anything fragile, okay, can't stay... I mean, with a reputation or something like that, gets wiped out very quickly because you can have some, I don't know, some replacement to one of these companies in, in no time, just like they arose. So more this broad- is why I, I, I don't consider that their being big is something permanent.
0: Mm.
2: More broadly, Nassim has a
0: rule of thumb which is if uh, uh, an organization or an entity has been around for X, yeah. it, uh, okay. it may well be around for X more.
2: It, it's very strange if you follow the logic of convexity effects all right, and, and some of you who have read my earlier book, The Black Swan know there's something called extremistan, mediocreistan anything perishable Okay? Typically, every day that that, that a person, a human lives, you tend to uh, live a day less, except for you guys here, all right? Your life expectancy drops by a little less than a day for every day you live. For an idea, technology, something not perishable, or a book, every day you live increases your life expectancy by a day. It's very strange. So this is, uh, now what does it tell you? It tells us that this is, uh, I'm Lebanese, so visibly made in Lebanon 3,000 years ago. Or at least, or, you know, or they stole the recipe from someone else, but still same same thing. Or at the chair, Egypt, how many years ago. And look at picture, a new book I show, a picture of Pompeii's kitchen. So so really, we are dominated by old technologies that get cheaper to produce. And new technologies don't stick. So when you look at the future, so it's very simple. The rule of thumb is as follows. A book that has been in print 25 years has 25 years to go. The technology that's been around for 100 years has 100 years to go. Same for companies, same for anything. So it tells us when you look at the future that it definitely would have a lot of technologies, unfortunately not the ones we have today. So just like the laptop, it's starting to disappear who would have said the laptop would disappear, replaced by some other, uh, this monstrosity, what it's called, the, the, whatever. All right, and some other monstrosity would replace this, maybe the folding uh, screen that you put in your pocket, and then you get the idea. So you'll have, so so this is the, 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 the so it's, it's, if you want to figure out the future, study the past to predict the future, it works a lot better.
1: Brilliant. Well, we've been around for 256 there years, so that's, um, uh, that's <laughs> very good news for us. I have to say... But you're perishable. I mean, uh, looking
2: at your ceiling and stuff uh, like this. <laughs> um, uh, actually,
1: coincidentally, this is going to be the last ever event in this room with raked seating. We're about to take it all out and re- return to the flat floor of the original. So this is a notable event in all sorts wow. of ways. Um, I should also tell you uh, something that's important to know, which is apparently... A couple of years ago in Ascot, which is a very affluent part of the outskirts of London, life expectancy rose by more than a year in a year, which means that the people of Ascot are now immortal. Um, uh, which, which may be good news for the Conservatives, I have to say. Uh, um, uh, now, uh, thank you all for coming. Sorry you've been crammed in. Sorry we can't take lots of questions. Um, we're delighted I've had you here. We're delighted, Rowan, for you to. I know because I used to work in government that it's not. Really fair of me to ask him difficult questions, because if he says anything, the slightest bit controversial will be in the newspapers. so you've been a great sport. Uh, thank you for that. I can ask you to join me in thanking Rory Silver. And Mr. Seth and Seth. Thank you for
0: listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not download our free app to access video and audio files on the go? Just visit our website, the RSA.org, and follow the links to the RSA Vision mobile app.